Welcome to the GateWorld podcast. This is episode number 107 of the GateWorld podcast. Darren? And I'm Diana. Diana? Where the hell is In- David? Dealing with a very sick motherboard. A uh, sick motherboard at the last minute. David's bowed out, but fortunately we have the very excellent Diana Botsford joining us this week for the podcast. We were actually going to have you on anyway. We were going to have a yes. three-way conversation about this episode of SGU. So it's just lucky that we have you waiting in the wings. And I am very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming back. This is the show where two nerds talk about Stargate, and our main discussion topic this week is Trial and Error. Episode 6 of the new season of Stargate Universe aired last week, and we've got Diana here. Diana, before we jump right into this episode, which I think you and I were both pretty thrilled with, and pretty thrilled thrilled with the character that it focused on, before we jump into that, I just want to catch up. Tell me what's going on with you, and if you have anything else that you wanted to talk about. Well, uh, let's see. I am um, working on the sequel to Four Dragons right now, The Drift, and I am packing for Antarctica as we speak. I'll be going down there in December in in search of the ancient outposts, so to speak. (laughs) So I've I've learned more about the geography of Antarctica than I know about the United States at this point. So you're going next month? I'm going the day after Christmas. I head south Amazing. to the bottom of the world. Yeah, with I'm how many very people? Very excited. Me, myself, and I, and a dear friend of mine who is also a very sincere Stargate fan. So she'll be joining me, and uh, okay. we're both trying to learn a little Russian to talk with a Russian scientist. So this is nice. going to be interesting. So it's not just you in a backpack and some snow boots. I wish it was. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> And you said that the the working title of the sequel to your SG-1 novel is The Drift? Yes, yes. That alludes to Continental Drift. So everybody needs to brush up on the Lost City episode before they read this book. The main discussion. Well, let's talk about Trial and Error. Great episode. I'm still thinking about it almost a week later. I think that says volumes for the for the episode it's um okay so i set you up with star trek the next generation so that i can make my requisite reference here so the setup was kind of like cause and effect which is one of my favorite episodes of tng where enterprise keeps getting destroyed over and over and over again because they're caught in this time loop this is sort of similar although it does all turn out to be a dream although a, a very significant important dream for some of our characters no absolutely and i'll be honest i thought the same thing but you know let's be on let's be frank here there's only so many stories in the world and when cause and effect came out people were comparing it to some older science fiction short stories and even hmm. full lanes it's a trope it's a trope mm-hmm. and this was stargate's take on the trope but it was really that was only really the first third of the whole story. I mean, I didn't even feel that the repetitiveness was that important to it. It was more the driving, what was driving that repetitiveness that really was the A-plot, you know, yeah, the simulation. It, it was less than half the episode, I realized, when I went back and rewatched it today. And it's, you know, in TNG, they go through that whole sort of repetitive sequence at least uh, half a dozen times. Mm-hmm. And... Here, there's only three of them, and he, he makes three different attempts using different strategies to try and, try and get out of this scenario. There's, by the end of it, I mean, there's, there's sort of that feeling of Teal'c in uh, the SG-1 episode Avatar, 
where he's in the yes. video game world and, and has to relive this scenario. Tilk reaches a point where he just resigns. Yes, he when he gives up. resigns to his fate and watches people around him die again and again. I kind of got that feeling from Young when he's lying on the floor, basically laughing at the, the insanity of the situation that he's in after Scott has punched him out. Uh, and then, obviously, he goes and, and literally just sort of shuts down and locks himself in his quarters. I mean, it almost is like destiny deliberately pushed him down to the bottom of the barrel to see if he'd get back up. So, we've been talking for a long time. That I Basically, I think since the pilot, I, I think that Colonel Young has been my favorite character on the show. I think we learned when you came on the podcast that the same is, is pretty much true for you. Oh, absolutely. And you and I have talked a bit on the show and a bit off the show, probably about where that character has gone. They've obviously been taking him to a very dark place. Uh, and it feels like maybe this was the episode where he reached the bottom of the pit that he was in and is maybe now has the capacity to start going back up. It's not going to be a quick fix. It's not going to be a quick heal. But, you know, I, this is the episode that I wanted to see for Colonel Young because I, I love the character so much and I love Louis Ferreira so much that, you know, I didn't want to watch two plus years of him going darker and darker and darker into this hole and not seeing any light really just no, I sort agree. of you know sort of deconstructing the character episode by episode with with no light at the end of the tunnel that's why i like i said i feel like destiny did this deliberately because it was getting impatient <laughs> <laughs> and wanted to get on with things and you know we're still not clear by the end really at first blush, it may appear like at least Rush thinks that he's the one who ended it and that Young was never going to succeed. I, I don't think that's necessarily true. Mm -hmm. I think Rush is the one, Rush is being tested as much as Young. I think, mm. as I've said before, you can't become an Air Force colonel in special ops, which is what the Stargate program is. It is a special operation without having gone through massive psychiatric tests and massive other tests to have gotten to the point that he got. So he's got it in him. It mm -hmm. just got lost along the way. And I think that it's possible that either Destiny or Scott, it could have just been happenstance that what Scott said to him triggered something in him about that somebody needs to be the one who cares and somebody needs to be the one to carry everybody else's burdens. Um, in a sense, he's like Sisyphus. He's carrying that rock up the hill, and he's going to get knocked down, and he's going to have to carry it back up the hill. But somebody has to do it, and it looks like yeah. Young is elected. Early on in the series, it, I mean, when he's on Icarus Base in air, he's, he's basically got it all together. He's got some marital problems, we find out later. It's, it's factors uh, over the course of the series, like the baby, and then losing the baby at the start of the season... That gets picked up in this episode. We see that that's sort of one of the one of the factors I think that's driving him to hell. Which actually, quite frankly, makes you like him more. Yeah. Because if he had not had feelings about losing a child, if he was just numb to it, yeah, there would have been more of a disconnect between him and the audience. And by knowing that he cares, I think it makes us care about him. Yeah, he and TJ had had conceived this child uh, while he was having an extramarital affair. Uh, back when they were on Icarus base. And it seemed like, you know, early on in season one, he was going back home to see his wife, Emily, using the communication stones. He was trying to reconcile with her. And, and he had apparently told her about this relationship and had broken it off. And so it's nice to see that he didn't sort of, 
you know, right off the baby and, and the fact that the baby is, is his child and he has a responsibility toward, toward her mm-hmm. uh, along with sort of putting that extramarital affair behind him. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole other sidebar is who really started that affair because based off the way that he basically shuts TJ down in that scene in this episode, I almost mm-hmm. got the feeling that she initiated that, not him. Just the sense of, well, you know, yeah, we're screwed now, and uh, thanks a lot. I almost felt like he was blaming her, and whether it's accurate or not, and I don't know if we're ever going to find out the truth on that one, on that front or another. But what's interesting, I mean, really what it all boils down to is, is that Destiny is hyper-aware of everything that's going on to know that Colonel Young is supposed to be in charge of these people. Mm-hmm. For it to be that aware... And then to be testing him like this demonstrates a level of AI beyond what one would expect out of just a computer. Yeah, it was testing him, and it really seems like it was not the sort of thing where there's just this computer program that the ancients came up with that said, well, at some point, somebody's going to come along and be in charge of this ship, and maybe Destiny's AI should keep its eye on him or her. Uh, it's really more like this is sort of the first solid evidence I think we have that Destiny really does have an artificial intelligence. Um, that it is a, it's a character on this show. It's it's thinking, and uh, I mean Rush has this interesting analysis in the episode where he says that it's not like the ship uh, has a personality or a will. I don't know if that's oh, necessarily true because it oh, not anymore. Seems, it isn't. No, seems like Franklin is is manifesting the ship's personality. Yeah, uh, Franklin and uh, the wife. I mean, the the dead wife is certainly mm-hmm. another element of it. I don't think that I, I've seen some people cri- criticize this as being similar to Battlestar Galactica with Baltar and Six. I don't think that's what's going on here at all. The fact that it's now been established that this AI utilizes brain waves as a way to tap into everyone's minds shows that it can just by pushing one neuron path more in one direction than another, it is able to trigger certain things as far as what we see and what we feel. And like Eli says at the end, it is a little spooky. Yeah, that the ship can basically read everybody's brain waves and at least cause them to see things in their dreams. It makes me wonder if the ship can cause people to see things while they're awake. You know, can it can it cause hallucinations? Uh, would it do so deliberately? And then, if it's gotten a love for the Lucian Alliance, maybe maybe it doesn't care. Why didn't it sort of throw off the Lucian Alliance when they were invading? Yeah, I you know I don't know. And the other possibility is is that it, if it's using electrical brain waves of people's minds to infiltrate them and to communicate between people. If you were to use it like the uh, SETI search program where they had all, where we can all sign up with our computers to help search the skies, for instance, it's possible Destiny is using the brains of everybody who's come on board to help it operate. And the more brains, the better. So having the Lucian Alliance on board only helps it, doesn't hinder it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I suspect we're going to see more very soon in regards to these questions, and I, I'm looking forward to it. There's lots to talk about in terms of the AI and what's going on with the Destiny testing Colonel Young in this battle scenario. But let me go back to TJ really quick mm. before we get on to the rest of that. Let's talk about, there's a couple of scenes. There's this opening scene where he goes in and tells her that uh, Emily wants a divorce, 
and she sort of wants to, you know, stop and have a conversation about it. And he he says, you know, what is there that could possibly be said? And then the, the scene later at the still at Brody's still, uh, where she she sees how dark he's going. That he's going to a dark place, and says that she almost went there too uh, when she lost the baby. It, that's a much more intimate scene. She calls him by his first name. But what do you think is going on with this relationship? Do you think do you get the impression from from these couple of scenes that she might be interested now that she's she's found out that he is quote-unquote back on the market again that uh, once things settle down and he gets his act together that she might be interested in restarting their relationship i think it's hard to say at this point i think she is still in a place where she is hungering for her child because that's very much evident even from that scene at the still that that's still what she's thinking about and i think it may be more of a case that she's trying to reach out to the one other person that she believes would have some sort of compassion for the subject i mean this is the father of her child and she's feeling he would want to know whether that means she'd want to get back together with him or not i think that remains to be seen Mm -hmm. i I don't think that's necessarily the case here i don't know i've been pleased that they're starting to make her tougher again and make her not tougher that's a bad word but she's asserting herself Mm -hmm. and uh she certainly has a backbone but I think that she's reaching out to Young because that it's their child and she feels he needs to know that the baby's still alive. And I think it's fascinating how Young responded to that. Yeah, and it seems like, at least as far as TJ is concerned, that's a big part of why he is where he is at at this point, is because of the child. Uh, clearly he's got a whole bunch of other stuff going on. Uh, he was going dark already late in season one before she got shot. But yeah, that's a big piece of it. Major guilt, absolutely. Yeah. That's like, very. I mean, he's got guilt over a whole bunch of things. But you know, I think that he, we, we are all as human beings in need of reinforcement. And in an ironic sort of way, what's happened now is destiny has basically shored up Young and said, "You can do this, and I believe in you. I, the ship, believe in you." <laughs> so he's got Scott on his side, and he's got the ship on his side, and that's certainly going to put a little more buoy back in his step. Yeah, and some of the scientists now, Brody at the end of the episode yes. basically thinks that the ship is, has christened Young as the right man for the job. Yes. Because he showed up, he waltzed in there and started giving orders, and the ship took off back into FTL just like it was supposed to. So the real question is, does Destiny really believe that? I mean, what do you think from that end mm-hmm. conversation with Franklin? I was totally thrown because it's literally, I mean, obviously they made it look like this, but that scene where Young comes in and, and gives orders and is, he, I mean, he's back. He's got a long road to go probably still, but he's back. And yeah. the moment at which the ship goes into FTL, it's it's like it's, that's got to be what's happening because the ship only came out of FTL because he, he quit and he right. locked himself up in his room. That's got to be what's going on. So, yeah, the Franklin and Rush thing at the very end really sort of threw me. Yeah. You know, Rush was the one who just pushed a button and found an override for the simulation and got them back into FTL. I'm not sure if really that's the case. Well, and quite frankly, Franklin, a.k.a. Destiny, makes it pretty clear that that may not be the case, that Rush may think he's in charge, but he's not. Isn't it great to be speculating about yeah. an episode of television? I mean, this is great science fiction. Yeah, this is wonderful. it's a lot of fun. It's well. First of all, we got we have to come up with a new name for Franklin if we're pretty sure that he's he's Destiny. Franklin-y. 
<laughs> or Destin. Destin. <laughs> Destin. Uh, or does that sound a little like Dexter? Uh, yeah. I hope he's like not like Dexter. Puppy's name. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, uh, I, I think the fact that uh, we're still thinking about the episode so much almost a week after it's aired, is, it just speaks volumes yeah. for the episode. It makes me more eager for the next episode. And that's, to me, great story. This is what Brad Wright and everybody else always did so well. And, you know, here they are in second season. And just as we all predicted, they're finally finding their stride. And they have us speculating and they have us wondering and they're revealing things layer by layer. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I can't wait to see what happens next. And I expected, based on the previews for this episode and based on uh, some of the spoilers that I'd read and some of the cast and crew interviews, I expected that this was going to be a big plot episode, that it was going to advance the season arc forward significantly because the aliens were back and, you know, stuff was going on with Chloe. And uh, it turned out to not really be that. It turned out to be kind of a character piece for young Primarily, although there's, well, there's definitely some some big stuff going on here for other characters as well. Yeah, like Scott. I would disagree but, with um, you. I think that there's several really? key plot movements forward. Young is divorced. That needed yeah. to happen. Okay, there was Young was really being separated from the crew. He was doing that to himself. They didn't believe in him. They didn't trust him. Remember, we just a few episodes back had that whole split between the civilians and the military. This episode somewhat solidifies most of the civilian scientists now ready to support mm -hmm. him because he's proven himself in their eyes. Yeah, definite okay? advancements uh, on the character level, specifically. That's right. That's right. We've demonstrated now that Camille is interested in helping... We demonstrated the last episode that Camille is aware of how important Eli is, so now he brings somebody to help Eli particularly focus on the algorithms and the work that he's doing you have chloe it's now we're seeing the transformations happening on her skin that was foreshadowed in the last episode so right, i think right. that we've had all it's chess pieces on a board and i think they've all definitely taken a step forward yeah here. well my my point was that i expected it to be sort of a huge plot episode ah. and and it wasn't but i still loved it and i still end up you know like you said a week later still talking about it and trying to figure out what's going on but franklin and 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 rush franklin sort of representing destiny yeah i would have to speculate at this point you know one of rush's last lines to franklin is ultimately i'm in control of this ship mm -hmm. and i just see franklin slash destiny franklin-y saying, oh, really, you control this ship? Well, we'll see about that. I mean, he literally says, but just because there's one threat behind you doesn't mean there isn't another ahead. Mm -hmm. And then he disappears, and Rush is just a little freaked by that. It spooks Rush, which is good. Rush needs to be kept on his toes. And I think, you know, the other thing that, yes, you're right, it's all through, it's character-driven plot, the, the episode, but quite frankly, that's always been the best kind of science fiction, even in, in science fiction literature, is it's always been how characters respond and react to the science that makes for a story that we're just wanting to follow. Mm -hmm. um, so I was really pleased with that. And then, you know, the other thing that's kind of neat, and it is a step forward, I think, is that, uh, you know, as Eli, it looks like Eli may have somebody else's attentions. Yeah. And that's kind of nice. Yeah, Maybe. she's cute. Well, yeah, she's a redhead. <laughs> <laughs> All redheads are cute. Camille sets Eli up with Gin, 
Apparently it is Gin. We've been calling her Jin for the last six hmm. months. And yeah, she, so she's this Lucian Alliance sort of ancient computer systems expert. And she says something interesting pretty early on, which is that she has been studying ancient systems for over a year, getting ready for this mission. Yes. So adds to the timeline of what the Lucian Alliance knows and how long they've been planning to do this. Disturbing, to say the very least. I mean, they have the ancient, if they have at this kind of access to the ancient technology, and we have on top of that the fact that they're planning on invading Earth, they could be using that ancient technology against us. Yeah, it is interesting. And if that's what's really going on, I mean, I, I still don't know if we can trust Gin or not. Yeah, that's going to be my next question. Do you trust her? I don't. <laughs> hmm. I don't. I am, I am suspect. I, uh, her answers are a little too pat, and she's a little too eager. And in fact, there's even a, a, a cut sequence in there, an edited sequence in there, where Greer uh, wanders off, starts wandering off down the hall, and she peers around the corner to see if he's there or not. You know, that says that bot body language to me, that says that uh, she plans that she has some plan of her own that she's slowly starting to advance. Listen, I'm going to call it and it could be crazy. But at the end of the day, I'm not necessarily sure either of those Lucian Alliance guys are really in charge. This gal could be in charge. This could have been her, you know, that, that woman's second. Wouldn't that we be don't interesting? Know. Could be very interesting. Yeah. Second to Kiva. Yeah, Kiva. That, that would be interesting. Right. Right. Much more than she appears. Yeah, I was surprised. Okay, we've let them out of confinement. Uh, we, we still have guards on them, but they they have access to roam around the ship. Uh, she's being given duties now to work with Eli. I was surprised not only that Greer was happy enough to, to wander off and, and leave these two lovebirds alone, mm. but then when Eli chased after Greer and left her alone, with uh, presumably with access to a computer terminal, that it didn't send up red flags for Greer. Yeah. Because uh, that's yeah. an awful lot of trust at this point to give yeah. this character. That's a quibble, definitely. That's a real quibble. I mean, I understand yeah. why Eli did it. Eli's a civilian. I mean, the kid has been, you know, he's been kicked out of MIT, or and he has been playing computer games. He's very yeah. sheltered. He's I mean, as he demonstrates at this point, exactly. He even demonstrates it later in the episode when he start when they're in the middle of trying to figure something out and things are getting tense and he starts talking about her and somebody knocks him on the side of the head and says, "Hello, we have a little more urgency than you know." how your hormones are acting. <laughs> so I, I don't blame Eli at all, but Greer, that, that's a little unusual, but I don't think Greer, I honestly don't think Greer has any ulterior motives. I think Greer just is acting out of the goodness of his heart. He has a big heart, Greer. Yeah, he's kind of sweet in this episode, the way that yeah. he notices very quickly what's going on between these guys, sort of teases Eli into, into making a move. Well, I mean, he also, since Scott is one of his best friends also i'm sure that it's bothered him to see the triangle that was going on i mean you had to have been aware but there's only how many people on that ship mm -hmm. you know i mean it's it's a small it's a small crew it's a small group and word's going to travel fast so i do think that Greer is trying to create some more peace on the ship which is sort of ironic since he's such a rabble rouser himself yeah i don't know where it's going to go with these two uh with eli and gin I still, I think, you know, the rumor that's going around that she's a Tok'ra, I still think there might be something, <laughs> there might be something to it. 
They're my, I keep Too waiting thick. for her, well, I keep waiting for her eyes to flash, you know? Yeah. How much would the, would the flashing eyes mean to the casual SGU viewer? I don't know. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. You know, and I, it's interesting you bring that up because uh, David and I were talking the other day about how now that the SGU is really getting underway, feeling the wonderful weight of the entire franchise's mythology behind it, it's a delight. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think for those who have watched all three series that are, in li- are enjoying Story A Universe, I think they're having a great time. There's a lot and of I think Easter that's eggs. Only, that's only going to get bigger and bigger and more significant because we know very soon it's coming. Uh, we're going to find out about Destiny's mission and why the Ancients launched it. Yep. You have any predictions? I mean, I mean, Rush has a line in this episode that he tells Chloe he thinks he's very, very close to figuring out what that is. Predictions? I, I don't know. Um, uh, David wanted to have a whole show dedicated to people's predictions on Destiny's mission, and when we found out that it was going to happen in the first half of the season, mm. we sort of ran out of time to do it. I don't even know where to begin guessing why the you know these Cedar ships went out to place Stargates in, in multiple galaxies, and Destiny is now following them, and it's stopping at some planets and not at others, and it's it's you know following a corridor... It's kind of like laying train tracks. Think about... Like it has a specific destination that it's trying to reach. Yep, exactly. It's like laying train tracks, you know, when we first explored the West in the United States and we laid down Mm. train tracks. I have a very specific theory, but I don't know if you want to hear it or not. I I think there's something very important that uh, the ancients foresaw that is critical to the universe. So it'll be. Do you have I, an idea I, what that is? Is it? Well, the, yeah, I do. I do. I think that it's. I think that the ancients pre pre the ATA gene, pre the plague coming around, when they really thought they were going to live forever, because don't we all? I think that they foresaw through long range sensors, they saw an end to the universe, and I don't mean a physical end. I think I meant a termination of the universe based Mm -hmm. off of a certain event that would happen in the far distance. And I think that that's what destiny's destiny is, is to go stop it. I mean, it's got, listen, the ship has got sheets and it's got pillows and the ability Mm -hmm. to manufacture air and it's got showers, bathrooms, Mm -hmm. whole nine yards. It's meant to have a crew at some point and those train tracks were being laid down. And I I, I do think there is something that's so important it makes any little snipe happening on de- the destiny or even the Lucian Alliance fight with, uh, with Earth seem minuscule in comparison. Yeah. It makes the Ori look tiny. It makes the ghoul look like insects. It's going to be that big and important thing. Not a galaxy mm. at stake, but the entire universe. Yeah, maybe so, so maybe stopping an intergalactic catastrophe. Exactly. Interesting. I like that. I have that level of faith in the ancients, although conversely, I mean, at the end of this episode, I didn't like Destiny very much for for messing with Young's head like that. (laughs) Destiny's kind of a jerk. (laughs) Yes, Destiny is a jerk. Okay, so let's talk about specifically the first part of this episode, the three scenarios, or the the three attempts that Young goes through with, with this scenario that Destiny has presented him. We've seen it in the past. These aliens show up and... And Colonel Young's first instinct in episodes, I think, like Divided, is to fire up the weapons and take the aggressive posture and shoot back. And in that episode, 
uh, I think Rush proved that the the more defensive posture is the way to go. And so the second time around, he doesn't fire back. Instead, he's, he sends all of their, their limited power to the shields, and let's see if we can outlast them long enough until Destiny goes back into FTL. Yeah, I mean, I find it interesting that n- never an attempt is made to just contact the other ships. And what would you say? Well, I mean, hello, you know, don't shoot us. Let's be friends. Let's, let's, I mean, that would be, I mean, I don't think that's just a Camille Ray thing. I mm-hmm. think that, uh, you know, I mean, if, I'm sorry, I'm looking towards Star Trek, but that's what they would do on Star Trek, and I think there's some logic behind it. They're all alone out there. They could use some allies. Yeah, and the interesting thing would have been if they would have had time to do a fourth go-round. You know, Young did his strategy, he did Rush's strategy. It would have been interesting to see if he would have tried maybe an idea from Camille and, you know, open hailing frequencies and say, we're willing to talk about your demands if you come aboard. Very nice. That Just would have come been and have a conversation nice. with us. Yeah. Well, what, yeah, I mean, if, he had, if Young had gone through a series of doing what other people recommended and then got to the point where he realized he had to trust himself because he wasn't trusting himself, that would have been a very interesting way to go with the story as well. But I think what it really speaks to is where we reveal halfway through this, the episode is that Chloe is really weighing heavily on Young's mind. Yeah, I think I, maybe just as much as the baby, he's got this huge burden on his shoulders you know the everyday burdens of command are huge but now he has chloe going through this transformation and he says to scott when they have their throwdown at the end of the episode i'm gonna have to leave her behind on some planet probably and she knows it and you know it and everybody on the ship knows it but i'm the one who's gonna have to make the decision and i'm the one who's gonna have to live with it and it's interesting because that sort of ties into what scott says to him at the end that you know you're gonna i'm sorry you don't get to feel sorry for yourself you're going to have to have the burden of command, mm-hmm. you know. So I think it's interesting that that gets tested out and dem- and shown before there's the conversation between Scott and him. Um, is it the second or third time where Scott punches him out in the simulation? It's the third one. His his third strategy is basically to go for broke, and I mean it shows us that he's capable if he if he's backed into a corner and doesn't see any other way out, he's capable of handing Chloe over. So that's what he does, and that's what what gets him decked by, by the dream. So Scott. So destiny is controlling his dreams. Wouldn't that that the, the Scott hitting Young demonstrate that that wasn't the right answer to turn Chloe over to the aliens? Wouldn't that be destiny's way of punishing Young by having Scott punch mm-hmm. him out? Maybe it's that's definitely not the right answer. If, uh, if destiny knows Scott's head just as well as anybody else's head, I think it's a, a realistic response. Yeah, just just showing Young the results of what that decision is going to be. You know, the aliens are not going to go away in this scenario. They still board the ship. Right. And that's when, when Young encounters one of the aliens in the corridor and gets shot. That's how that dream ends, instead of the ship blowing up. That's all right. So, yeah, but Chloe is so good in this. She's so interesting because, and, and I, I had to figure out what's the dream and what's not the dream when I went back and watched it for the second time. Uh, you know, when he shows up in, in at her quarters and, and she says, you know, it's time, isn't it? And he, he takes her in to the airlock and, or the uh, breach in the hole and hands her over. That's all the dream. But before that, before the dream started, was when he had this longer conversation in her quarters about the fact that and, and she knows that he's probably going to have to leave her behind at some point. And, you know, she says things like, everybody's afraid of me and I think I'm afraid of myself now. All that, that stuff for Chloe is, 
is apparently real, not part of the dream world. Yeah, I think the transition is very interesting between the two. It's unsettling, actually. Mm-hmm. It takes your, your brain a moment to catch up, and I think that's, a good, that's good and deliberate. It almost, in a sense, reminded me just a little bit about Inception, where there were moments early on where you weren't quite sure, am I in a dream or am I in the real life? And I thought that was a very clever directorial and editing decision to make us not quite clear where the line was between reality and dream. And and it's unsettling, and I think that was the whole point of the episode, is for us to be unsettled and to feel it along with Young. And I think we most certainly do. And we again, this is the first half of the episode. We go through all three of those scenarios before we even find out that Destiny is is testing him uh, has this scenario and is tapped into his brainwaves so he really is dreaming i mean it sort of shows us that that one of these sequences starts whenever he lays down or the last one he's sitting at his desk and his head kind of nods off a little bit mm-hmm. so they make you kind of suspect well is he dreaming right now did he just fall asleep all right uh, but but they don't confirm it until we've seen all three of them it was very good who directed this episode uh andy Makita. Andy Makita. Yeah. Nice work. Very nice work. I would say it's his best episode act, character acting-wise, actually. Well, there were comments bandied about, I think, in, a, in an interview from Brad Wright, that, that this was Louis Ferreira's best performance as Colonel Young, and that it was Emmy-worthy. And after watching it, I think, boy, it would be great if they could submit this. Yes. For Emmy contention. Yes. I, Louis's just fantastic in this. Yeah, this is definitely... This makes me just like the character even more. Be fascinated, I think is the right word. Fascinated by mm-hmm. the character even more. What I find particularly interesting about the actor is all the set reports we hear that he just jumps in and out of the character so quickly. He, right. he very clearly knows who this character is. You know, I'm looking forward to the next episode. I know it's a, it's a, a mano-a-mano with Rush again, and that's always a great thing to watch. Well, do we have anything more to say about this uh, artificial intelligence and Franklin and... Other than, I, I think that, quite frankly, at this point, the only thing we can say is that nobody should be trusting it. It needs to be confronted at this point, and I wish Rush wouldn't hold all the cards so close to his chest. I don't, know, I, I don't understand his motivation to that. That's the one thing I could speak to. I don't understand Rush's motivation for holding the cards so close. Yeah, yeah I mean, is, he, is he afraid that young or or everybody else is going to screw up what his plans are i mean even if they turn this sort of selfishness thing yeah i'm sorry even if they turn the ship around it would take hundreds of thousands of years to get back to earth so at least you know what's the point there what rush is doing really makes no sense i'm sure we're about to find out why that is also and then it'll become very interesting to see how that bridge is used once you know once all the truth get out and matt scott i think is another character who deserves a mention here as much as i've been waiting for young to sort of turn his corner so that i can start loving him again and 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 less uh be sort of oddly fascinated with his his dark turn you know what i mean by that yes i do Yes, I do. Time to move him on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with with Matt, I mean, I've been critiquing Matt. I think since since at least the midpoint of season one, as far as well, this guy was created. I mean, he was a junior officer. This character was created to be the guy who's sort of thrust into a position of leadership before he's ready, and he has to figure out how to cope, especially leading off-world missions. He makes some dopey decisions, you know, in in 
Lost, and and uh, actually it wasn't in Lost; it was actually in Human, where they went down into the into the tunnels. You know, didn't leave Greer outside, didn't order Greer to stay outside, but Greer followed them down in because Eli had sort of teased him about being afraid of the dark or confined spaces. You know, just like Young has made some bum command decisions, Lieutenant Scott has not really showed himself to be terribly good as a commander. This episode completely changes that. This guy, just as much as Young at the end, Lieutenant Scott steps up in this episode, and when it becomes clear that Young is not coming out of his quarters, I mean, he takes command. He organizes, uh, you know, defense parties uh, in case the aliens show up and board the ship. And I mean, this guy is is finally getting to be where I wanted him to be. I think. I understand that he wasn't there right away. Well, it's not just as a trial and error. It's trial by fire. You know, in this case, like you say, Scott is really starting to learn. I mean, he's going to school the hard way. Um, this is not like going up through the ranks at the SGC and being under someone's command and going under no- normal missions. There's nothing normal about what's going on. But um, I like this Scott more, I will say that. I, I, um, I like him making the right calls, and, but also understanding his place and understanding that he is not ready to command that Young is the one who needs to do this. I thought that was a very mature observation on his part, and it made me respect him even more, quite frankly, that he recognized his own shortcomings. Most people go through life never doing that, and here here he does that, and it really made me sit up and tip my hat off. Yeah, very much so. Camille and Rush come to him and basically say, hey, the job is yours, you need to take it, and he doesn't do it. Yep. And when he goes in to confront Young, I mean, what a fantastic scene this is. And it's written to be, frankly, exactly right. It's written to be incredibly authentic, I think, to human experience. Because what he could have said to the colonel was, you know, buck up, things look bad now, it's going to be okay. You know, try and encourage him, and he doesn't do that. Um, in a way... TJ going to him with this news that the baby is still alive is kind of a way to encourage him. It's kind of a way to say, things look really bad right now, but I think they're not really as bad. You know, I've got this little bit of information that will hopefully make you feel better. Have hope. Scott, yeah. Scott doesn't do that. Scott says, you know what? You are the commander. You are not only our military commander, but you're sort of our, our leader. This is the burden of command. You have to make these horrible decisions. You know, he confesses to Scott that he smothered Riley back in Aftermath. He says, this is the burden of command. You have to do these things, and you have to find a way to live with it. And that's just the way it is. It's a great speech, but what I'm happy about it is it's not a long soliloquy. It's broken up, and it's a lot of give and take. It's very organic. It's great writing, as usual. A little shoving match. Yep. Little shouting match. Young gets a little bitter at one point and starts l- laughing bitterly. Yeah, that's, Young that's uh, kind of pokes it at Scott's daddy issues a little bit. Yes, which I think is fair game also in this particular case. You know, I mean, part of the burden he's having is that this young man is wanting him to be his daddy. And not like he doesn't <laughs> already have enough problems, you know? But yeah, I think Scott Scott's done the right thing. He's pushed the right buttons, and I, and I don't think that that element of this relationship is that unbelievable. We see that uh, in life, where if we stumble, if we have a really good second in command or an assistant, if we're a supervisor or something, and we have a good assistant underneath us, that 
they're there to help shore us up. And Scott does that for Young in a moment where, you know, Young needed that moment. I'm hoping it's over and he's going to move forward now, but he definitely needed that moment to go through. I mean, having to kill somebody when he had to kill Riley, I mean, that I can't even go there. I can't even begin to imagine what it would be like to go there and then to have lose your child, to lose your wife, to be stranded, to be dealing with, you know, having lost other lives because of the Lucian Alliance thing. He's he has had this is the burden of command and it's huge. And he basically has to learn how to compartmentalize better. That's what got Jack O'Neill through it. That's what got Colonel Shepard through it is compartmentalizing. I mean, I don't know. I don't know about you or, or anybody listening, but when I think about my relationship with my father, there seems to be sort of a coming of age, at least with young men, if not with, if not with young women, where you sort of, you see your father for who he is. You see him as a fallible human being. They and fall so off the pedestal. You, you can move forward from a, a childhood relationship of idolizing your father to sort of a more realistic, more mature uh, relationship of you know recognizing that he's got his own issues just like you do and I think that this this scene particularly in the end really solidifies that so young is saying you've got daddy issues I stop coming to me looking at me to be your daddy and at the same time Matt has has to, to come to terms with the fact that this guy is is not really his hero I mean if he's a father figure he's very flawed. No, I mean, it's dead. I think everybody, I don't think it's a gender issue. I think everybody has a moment where their parents fall off the pedestal and yeah. how they He's move forward. Up. Yeah. And how they move forward from that, you know, it, it's how adult relationships are developed with our parents, sometimes good, sometimes not. In this particular case, because Scott is not in on Russia's conversation with Franklin either, so it is going to appear to him that he. He got his commander to stand back up, and everything's going to be good now. The last point that I want to say about this episode uh, that I really loved, that I think is is head and shoulders uh, moving forward, not necessarily above, but it's a step forward for these characters on this show, is you mentioned Jack O'Neill and John Shepard. In the previous shows, there was a, a very confident sense of military command. You know, you could rely on Jack O'Neill to... to make the decisions. Colonel Young's character for for the past I don't know how long since he started his spiral back in I don't know what justice or maybe even life at the end of the first half of season 1. You could uh, even that, say it was in the uh the very the pilot even is when he starts to really waver. But this guy has has not been making he's he's not been a good commander and this has been the good the theme of of Rush. Russia's drumbeat that he's the wrong man for the job, and the fact that that in a crisis moment where people need to hear an encouraging word from their commander, he gathers everybody in the gate room, walks in, dispenses a piece of information, and then walks out again, and has nothing else to say. This guy is struggling as a commander, and so in, in this episode, in Trial and Error, both from Scott and from Young, I see that that really solid... Uh, confidence in command that has has been mostly missing from the show. Yes, so it's going to be, I mean, for these people to move forward, my hope is for Young that he will start becoming a leader now, because I think that that has yeah. been a key part of Camille's complaint, along with others. Yeah, I hope so, too. 
Um, Rush, I don't know. I mean, I think, quite frankly, Young could have been perfect and Rush wouldn't have liked him. I think Rush doesn't like him just for the sake of not liking him. That's probably true. What I think, uh, as far as if O'Neill or Shepard were on The Destiny, you know, based off the tone of the show, I think that they would have behaved not necessarily like Young, but like Young. I mean, this is... This is pretty bad. This is about as isolated as one can get. There is no going home. I do question, although neither of them have necessarily had what Young has had happen so quickly, one bad event after another. They both have had bad past, but they have learned, they've already learned the lesson that Young is having to learn now. I think that's the key difference. They each have gone through very bad periods in their lives in the past, and they learned how to compartmentalize And Young now is going to have, this is Young's turn to learn the lesson on how to handle the burden of command and not go insane. It's that time again, quibble time. In the first two dream sequences, we have this scene where Matt, I think it's in the observation deck, wherever it is where the glass breaks. Uh, So in the first one, he's in there and the glass breaks and he gets sucked out. And in the second one, he looks in and decides not to go in and and seals the room off. This is part of the dream sequence, so the quibble would be, technically, this is is all happening in Young's brain. Uh, It's Young's dream. We shouldn't be seeing anything away from Young's POV. I understand why they they did it. It's it's, it's a storytelling device. It's kind of throw off the audience, um, but it seems like the sort of thing that we shouldn't have been privy to seeing. That's a good point, but everybody does this. I mean, when you have a, yeah, right. a, when they have a character has a flashback, it's never from the, it's it's rarely ever from their POV, from their point of view. It's it's always the camera's always looking at them. So <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's a good point. But you know, if it's a dream simulation, it's a game sim- simulation. You know, it, it, we never see Young respond to that. He never asks that question. It's a good point. I don't. I don't think there's a, a right answer to that. I would have a quibble with the fact that that was glass. I thought it was supposed to be a force field, per hmm. se. I didn't think that there would be glass. I didn't think there was glass there. So that was a, a little surprise. I mean, who would put glass? That's stupid. I don't remember if that was established last year. If they actually use like, like shields instead of. I may be thinking back to SG-1 to the end of the very first season when the uh, mothership goes to to, into hyperspace or whatever and Sam Carter says to Tilk, those aren't windows, are they? And he says, no, at the the velocities we're going, uh, glass would be, you know, it would break. It's force fields. So I think that's just subliminally carried forward in my head. So, I mean, how could you have glass at the speeds they're going at. It just doesn't seem scientifically possible to me. So that's my that's a quibble contribution for me. Okay. You have one more? I do, and that's the whole thing with Greer that you touched on before. You know, it's this is I think it Greer's I think it's sweet that Greer wants to help Eli, but he's a little too trusting. You know, okay, I'll say it. Is he a sexist and not think that the the women are a threat? Come on, look at what Kiva was doing. He's not that mm-hmm. stupid. Greer is not stupid. Okay, none of these characters are stupid. So I, I don't know why does Greer feel so sure that Gin is safe. Yeah, I mean she is a computer whiz, and we had 
Chloe under the influence just two weeks ago, you know, trying to access something on the computer. And I guess the last quibble would be Destiny is obviously cognizant of these blue aliens and cognizant of Chloe's situation. And my quibble would be, I don't know if it's a quibble or a question in the sense that if so, Destiny has shot back at these aliens or Destiny has allowed its weapons to be used to shoot back at these aliens. Why isn't Destiny, why isn't Franklin, or Franklin-y as you like to call him, why isn't Franklin-y telling Rush the deal about these blue aliens? Why aren't we getting the the lowdown on them? Yeah, it's, we've sort of come to the conclusion by now that that Franklin is is Destiny's sort of self-representation to Rush. I think Rush still doesn't know. He, He doesn't know if he's crazy or not. So Franklin is probably Franklin-y is probably not quite ready to come out and lay all his cards on the table and say, you know what, I'm Destiny. You've been talking to me the whole time. Yeah, which makes me think Destiny is very selfish, and Destiny considers all of these humans to be expendable, including Rush, hmm. which is or it's you know, testing all of them because it knows what its mission is. Maybe it's testing the entire crew to see if they can pull this off. Oh, that's very possible, definitely, but it's pretty harsh. You know, the ancients, I think we all, our first reaction to the ancients when we first started to meet them was with the Daniel Jackson style of wonder and therefore Mm -hmm. this positive attitude about them. But Mm -hmm. as we've gone on with this franchise, including even the tail end of SG-1 with the Ori, uh, with Morgan Le Fay and with with Oma DeSala, uh, and even moving through into uh, Stargate Atlantis, I think... Piece by piece, it's being revealed that the ancients weren't these wonderful godlike beings that the Lucian Alliance seems to think they are. That they, you know, they were pretty screwed up too. And cutthroat, I think that's the big thing we see now, is that if they po- programmed this AI, AI, they programmed it to be cutthroat too if it needs to. Yeah, and they didn't necessarily ascend to a higher plane of existence because they were just awesome and evolutionarily advanced. It's, they just figured out how to do it. Well, they were escaping sort of a, the plague. Yeah, it's sort of a technical process. I mean, by the time we get through through Atlantis and some of the analysis of Ascension that goes on in episodes like uh, the Tao of Rodney, sort of Ascension is just sort of this scientific discovery that they made. Well, that's trial and error, and we have a little bit of listener mail to get to this week. Let's open up the mailbag. Listener mail. Hey, Dan and Dave. This is uh, John from D.C. I know I called uh, a little bit ago, but I wanted to do it again because I read the article about the uh, ratings and you know, the big differences that's been going on. And I think, you know, this isn't a big surprise, but Stargate as a franchise has primarily been about, you know, exploration, you know, the average man going out there. I think, you know, the show, what some people have been not feeling has been the fact that it's just, been drama with some, you know, sci-fi aspects to it. It's not, it's not really engaging the long-time Stargate view because you know, like David said that he really wanted you know Pathogen to explore that seed ship and you know it's a big chunk of the mythology, but it, it just had a passing uh, glance. But I do hope it works out. Stargate's been big part of the, uh, my life for, you know, decade and more. Those are my thoughts. I'm going to put that out, though. Bye. Greetings. This is Evan. Uh, I have uh, a comment 
and a question, I suppose. My first comment is, um, I'm fairly sure that the ship is talking to Rush, and that he's not hallucinating the the people. And my question is, why haven't the humans created energy weapons? I mean, the Illusion Alliance had them. Pretty much the rest of the Milky Way galaxy has them. But it seems the humans haven't created them and used them. So, thanks. Keep up the good work. And um, can't wait to hear you guys. See ya. Okay, Diana. So, Evan asks, why hasn't Earth created energy weapons? We're, we've been out there in the galaxy for so long. We've got our hands on Zats, on Wraith weapons, uh, all these a alien, you know, cultures that we've encountered that have this sort of technology. Why are we still running around with P90s? I think it's a good question. You know, I think Diane Turnshek, when she did that science podcast with you guys, she talked a bit about the massive size of uh, a power supply you would need to have an energy weapon. Um, mm -hmm. And Naquita does not still seem like it's easily obtained, and that's the only... It does not grow on trees. No, it doesn't grow on trees, and they need it for Earth's defenses in regards to powering weapons. They use it, well, <coughs> as Ship a... Shipbuilding. Shipbuilding. I was going to say, although the chair is now destroyed, that they had figured out how to tie two Mark II generators together, powered by Naquita, to power the chair in replacement of a ZPM. Um, I have to believe they're continuing out there. The SGC is continuing to send teams out there in search of Naquita, that they've got mining operations going on. But no, it doesn't grow on trees. And mm -hmm. energy requires energy. Energy weapons require huge power supplies. Yeah, that's a good point. We saw back, I think it was in the fifth race in season two of SG-1, we saw that even a single staff weapon is powered by this little module of liquid Naquita. And I kind of like the idea that maybe liquid Naquita is not something that we can manufacture by just boiling Naquita, uh, but maybe it's like a variant element that is even more rare. Yeah, you know, that's it's, it's something they never really got into, and I guess you could hypothesize that they have, even though they've they battled Gould and won, they may not have found the secrets to processing not just weapons-grade Naquita, but beyond that into liquefied form. Mm -hmm. um, that's never explored. And I would imagine it's a very complex set of chemical, physics reactions that have to happen. And, um, yeah, check out the archives, uh, gateworld.net slash podcast. You can find the archives for our conversation on the science of SGU and science of Stargate in general with Diane Turnjack. Hi, Darren and David. This is depleted ZPM calling from California. I've fallen behind viewing SGU between Comcast updating their network and the 30-day delay on Hulu. However, I've kept up to date listening to the podcast, spoilers or not. One motif for the season is Chloe's changes after her short captivity on the Blue Alien ship. The thought occurs to me that Rush might not be free of the Blue's influence himself. After all, he spent a lot more time with them. The alien device that was removed from Rush may not be his only unwanted souvenir from that trip, and I wonder if there could be a big reveal when Rush finally allows himself a full sleep cycle. 
Thanks, everybody, for your voicemail. If you want to give us a call and share your thoughts on this week's new episode of Stargate Universe, we would love to hear it. This is going to be a big step forward for the show's mythology. I know I said it last week. The Greater Good airs this week on Sci-Fi Channel. Uh, Tuesday night in the U.S., Friday night in Canada on Space, and also Friday on Sci-Fi in Australia. Uh, The Greater Good is Episode 7, and we will learn some big things about what's going on in this show. So, if you have a thought, just share your gut reactions right after you watch the show. If you have a theory that maybe plays into what you've learned, give us a call on the podcast hotline, and that number is 951-262-1647. You can call anytime, day or night. It doesn't ring, it doesn't wake up my kids, it's just a voicemail box, and we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can also email in a brief audio recording to me at webmaster at gateworld.net and we will make sure to get as many thoughts and opinions and ideas into the show as we can so that's uh, this week on sci-fi so our November 15th show we'll talk about the greater good November 22nd we'll talk about malice and we're coming up pretty quickly here on the the end of the first half of the season Uh, visitation is our topic for November 29th and that's episode 9 that's all the show that we have. Thank you so much, Diana. That was a lot of fun talking about what I think is in my top two favorite episodes of SGU so far. Yeah, you know, me too. I, I mean, that's definitely one of my favorites. And thank you very much for having me on. I was looking forward to talking to you specifically about it. So <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We appreciate uh, your downloads. We appreciate your phone calls. Uh, we appreciate you posting on the podcast feedback thread. And just tell us that you're listening. That's at GateWorld Forum, and you can find a link to that and links to everything else that we talked about today, characters, past episodes, uh, in the show notes for episode 107, Trial and Error. And that's all we've got. Thanks also to Russell for putting together the show this week. Once again, he does an awesome job. And Diana, come back. Let's do it again. Thank you. I will, and have a great day. From GateWorld, this is Darren. And this is Diana. And we'll see you back here next week for more of the Gate World Podcast.